I'm Damian Bulwa, and this is Fifth and Mission. Nearly three years into the pandemic, companies and their workers are still navigating the intersection of office and remote work. And once again, we're in the middle of a holiday surge of the virus. In that landscape, California this week adopted new rules for companies and what they must do to slow the spread. Specifically, how do they have to treat employees who come down with COVID? We're going to talk to Chronicle reporter Chase DeFelici Antonio about that. Later in the show, another Chronicle reporter, Mallory Mensch, will join me. She's been writing about another pandemic-era problem that's understaffing in key jobs in San Francisco. Her latest story about the crisis is about short-staffing in the city's 911 dispatch center and what it means for how quickly first responders can get to people in need. First, Chase DeFelici Antonio. Chase, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. Chase, California has stepped into this very key role in how companies have to treat workers since the pandemic started. What happened this week? So this week, the Cal OSHA Standards Board adopted a new two-year resolution. It's a set of rules that is going to be in place for two years, and it essentially governs how companies have to react when employees come down with COVID. The big change here is around how they have to pay them, and in this case, not pay them, as well as what they have to do as far as testing and other protections going forward. And what did they say? So essentially, that's the big change here. Uh, It's called exclusion pay in the rules. But whereas for the past more than two years, if you get COVID and you are going to work every day, your employer has to pay you to stay home until you're better. So that could be something between five to 10 days. This has been a really contentious issue. Obviously, not surprisingly, business groups, the California Chamber of Commerce, has pushed for exclusion pay to be kept out of these rules because it's very expensive for businesses and for one reason. And labor groups, unions, those kinds of groups, they've pushed very hard to have this put back in, said it's a crucial protection. And if it's not there, people will show up to work sick instead of staying home because they'd be worried about forfeiting their wages. All right. So who, who are we talking about here? Are we talking about jobs that can be done remotely or things that have to be done at the office? So this is a really broad standard. That's what's really important here. Uh, The only exceptions are businesses, rare as they might be, that have one person or people that are working remotely. So if someone is working at home, that's a space that an employer does not necessarily govern, doesn't really have control over. They wouldn't be covered here. Also, some healthcare settings and labs, they have their own standard. That's existed since before the pandemic started called the aerosol transmissible disease standard. Uh, That's a lot stricter, but it really covers places where you really know that there are diseases kind of flying around in the air and there's a much higher risk a lot of times. All right. I want to get a little more into the the reasons behind this. Who is for it? Who's against it? And what are some of the factors? I mean, like you said, we don't want people to say, I really need to get paid. I can't afford to take less pay. I'm going to show up anyway. I'm not going to tell anyone. Yeah. So as part of the reporting for this, one of the people I talked to is Mitch Steiger. He's a legislative advocate at the California Labor Federation. They're obviously a labor side group. And his group and other labor groups have been pushing really hard, saying that this is almost the key protection in some ways, that if you do not pay people to stay home, they won't be able to continue to have health care coverage. They won't be able to continue to feed their families. And even if they're sick, they're going to show up and work through it. And if the goal here really is to slow the spread in workplaces and then they can get out of workplaces, you get into community spread, then you really have to pay people to stay home until they're recovered and not contagious. You know, I think early on in the pandemic, there were emergency measures, and that wasn't necessarily debated. But as things have gone on, 
over the last few years, that's become much more of a contentious point, especially as for businesses, it's become really, really expensive to do this. You're essentially paying someone to not work. Uh, the California Department of Public Health has cut down the amount of time in some cases that you can uh, stay out of work if you do have COVID. If you test negative after five days and you don't have symptoms, you can go back. You have to wear a mask still, but it's not quite the hard 10-day standard that it used to be, but it's still been a huge expense. So there still is a standard. There still are other protections, but this central contentious issue has really changed, and that means uh, a lot for uh, workers and for employers. All right. So, but you're burning sick time, maybe. Maybe you're going on temporary disability. I mean, there's a lot of factors here. There are. So, obviously, this is not the only way that you can get paid to stay home. Um, another thing that's been happening over the last few years is another type of uh, COVID sick pay leave uh, that got extended to the end of the year by Governor Gavin Newsom, but that's ending at the end of December. Uh, there's also other programs. If you can prove that you got COVID at work, you can apply for a workman's comp, but that in the best case, is going to take a long time to get covered, and it's probably only going to cover maybe two-thirds of your salary. You can go on temporary disability with the Employment Development Department of California, but there's a seven-day waiting period where you wouldn't be paid. If you do get paid, again, you only get a certain percentage of your salary. And let's not forget, state law does dictate that people are only entitled to three days of sick pay. Uh, a lot of people have more than that and are lucky to have more than that, but that's the minimum. And in some professions, especially lower paid professions, that's all you get. And so in that situation, if you're not making a lot of money, you're kind of living on the edges here and just getting by. It's a really tough decision to have to make. And I think some people understandably might make the decision to go into work to get that pay. So this big change that you talk about, when does it start and how long does it last? Right. So this takes effect early next year. It has to go through an administrative law review, but essentially it's going to take effect probably in January or potentially in, into February. Uh, in the meantime, the current standard, uh, which allows for exclusion pay, will remain in, in effect. But once the new standard takes effect, it's going to be two years from basically the new year. And then after that, the board would have to go back and decide what they want to do at that point based on where we are at with the pandemic and with COVID. And I, I imagine there may be some emergency circumstance where it could change, right? So one way that there is some flexibility here is this standard and some previous standards have built into them a rule where a lot of the definitions follow what the California Department of Public Health says. So what qualifies as an outbreak, how long someone might be infectious. So in the past, we had these uh, strict standards because it was an emergency situation that was kind of evolving that could not change along with the pandemic. Now there's a little bit more flexibility there. But for the most part, the standard uh, as it's written is going to be in effect for the next two years. All right. And then two years in, Chase, hopefully we'll be out of the pandemic. But in any event, what happens after that? So if we are not, then the board is going to have some more decisions to make. Even before this current two-year standard passed, uh, there's some of the labor representatives on the board talked about the desire to have exclusion pay in the two-year standard. And on Thursday, they even talked about the desire to have exclusion pay in a permanent standard. So even though they weren't able to get it in there this time, there is some agreement among at least some of the members of the board who lean more towards the labor side that that is a really necessary protection. And when this does sunset in two years, they are very much likely going to be looking at crafting a permanent standard for limiting the transmission of diseases like COVID at work. And I wouldn't be surprised if we're having the same debate, but at a higher level at that time. Chase, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. 
That was Chase DiFelici, Antonio, a Chronicle reporter. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Chronicle reporter Mallory Mensch on some big problems with short staffing in San Francisco. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Welcome back to Fifth Admission. I'm Damian Bulwood, joined now by Chronicle reporter Mallory Mensch. She works out of City Hall. Mallory, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Mallory, tell us about San Francisco and why it is struggling so much to hire people. So San Francisco is facing what workers and officials uh, all say is a staffing crisis. It does already have a lot of employees and employs more than 32,000 people. But right now, nearly one in 10 permanent and temporary positions are empty. And those vacancy rates have quadrupled during the pandemic. So they have a lot more empty positions that they're struggling to fill. And we see this or we see the impacts mostly in some critical city services. So things that absolutely need to keep running. That includes San Francisco General Hospital, which is the city's only trauma center, and it's run by the health department. It's also a 911 dispatch, the people answering the phones when you call 911. They have both been struggling. Dispatch stopped their training classes for two years, and they kept losing people, including some people that didn't want to comply with the vaccine mandate for city workers. At the hospital, they've seen turnover increase, and they're competing with hospitals across the country who, during the pandemic, are also facing the same shortages in nursing and and struggling to fill those positions. So, Mallory, let's talk about impact. First, you were talking to people at the 911 Dispatch Center. This is an agency that's already had some issues in terms of how quickly they can respond to calls, right? That's right. The agency had problems back in 2017 where they weren't able to meet the standards for answering um, a certain number of calls uh, within 10 seconds, but then they hired more, they were doing better, and that has just gone downhill during the pandemic because they lost a lot of people. People were also taking more leaves. Uh, They were burned out, and so they were having to force people to work over time more often because they just need to fill those positions. So because they didn't want to burn out their staff even more, they said, actually, we're going to even lower our standard for the time response in which we pick up calls. But they're still failing to meet that. So they're trying. They just hired a recruiter specifically for dispatchers uh, to try and get more people because they've started their training classes again, but they can't even fill them. And can you quantify that? I mean, what are we talking about in terms of response time? So the city's own goal for a long time is to pick up 90% of calls within 10 seconds. So last year they said, you know, we're going to lower that internally to 85% just so we can not burn out all our staff. But they're not even meeting that. So as of the past couple months, they were only meeting around 79% of calls that they're picking up within 10 seconds. Wow. So that's, I mean, that's obviously something that may impact 
a lot of people. Does it impact the staff as well? I think it definitely impacts morale. So, and and that's just for emergency calls or non-emergency calls. So especially a lot of complaints that the workers were talking about that they receive maybe about someone who's using drugs or who's camping in front of a business. Those are not high priority calls. So that's going to take half an hour, even the calls for the city's new street crisis response team, which is an alternative uh, to police responding to people in mental crisis on the streets. I saw one of those calls ticking past 30 minutes, 31 minutes before it was resolved. And they said, you know, this is just normal because we can't get to those non-emergency calls as fast. And that's also because of staffing issues in other departments. So police, we've heard a lot about that. They said they don't have enough staff, so they also can't prioritize those lower level emergencies. Medics are also short, so sometimes they said they need to send a fire engine first to a scene like a possible overdose death that I I saw when I was there in the dispatch center. They said, we'll send a fire engine has a paramedic and we're waiting for an ambulance to drop someone off at San Francisco General so that we can get uh, to the next emergency. Okay, well, let's talk about San Francisco General. Does that have an impact on patients, the fact that they're also short-staffed? It does, although, of course, the hospital says that patient care is their first priority and nurses and and workers that I spoke with said, yes, we, you know, if a woman is in labor, we can't leave her in the labor and delivery unit to go get a break or to stop our shift. We're just going to work overtime. We're going to miss our meal break so we can ensure that people are served. But there have definitely been some tangible impacts. So when they don't have enough staff and in order to not make people work extraordinary. Over time, they will close some beds in the emergency room or in other departments and then divert ambulances to other hospitals in the city. There also started to be a longer wait time in the ER in October because now we're seeing the seasonal respiratory illnesses and flu and COVID and everything. So that's stressing hospitals everywhere, but it means that Patients were waiting an average of nearly an hour in the ER, sometimes much longer. And I will add that this is not unique to San Francisco. I found some data that the average wait time in California was more than two hours. So San Francisco General is actually doing better, but still not great for patients and especially for the staff who are trying to shoulder the burden of this and ensure that they can still provide the best care, which just means that they have to work harder and longer. Is this purely an issue of there not being enough people out there that can be hired by the city, or does it go deeper than that? It goes deeper than that. There's some unique San Francisco issues, which the city says it's trying to address. So San Francisco has a hard time competing with some other even counties around the area because they have a very complicated and archaic civil service system, which they use to hire people. So there's a lot of rules that they have to follow, a lot of steps that take a very long time on an average of 255 days to hire one city worker. That's more than eight months, which obviously is longer. That's the average? That's the average right now. And so clearly that makes it hard to compete with other places. Normal places are hiring within three months. I I asked San Mateo County how long it takes them to hire. They said 11 weeks. So if you have a nurse who wants a job in San Mateo County, she probably wants to get it in 11 weeks instead of eight months. So that makes it hard for the city to compete. They are trying to fix it. So there's a, a commission, the Civil Service Commission, that oversees this process. And they're considering some changes in their meeting on Monday of 
things they're hoping to cut or streamline that they hope would cut this timeline in half. Still longer than San Mateo, though. Mallory, how much of this is about pay and is the city doing anything there to try to encourage people, incentivize people? So most people, most workers said pay is not the issue. City workers are are well paid. All Both of these positions, either dispatcher or nurses, are making more than $100,000 a year to start. But they did say that what would help are some either retention bonuses or hiring bonuses. So they said that nurses at other hospitals are getting offered five figures sign-on bonuses. So it's hard to compete with that. We just saw in San Francisco that teacher aides just got a retention bonus. Uh, So this helps incentivize people to stay. The city has said that because of their labor contracts, those are closed for the year. So that's not on the table right now. It could be if they sit down again with the unions and uh, come up with a separate agreement if they did uh, have an incentive to provide bonuses, which Maryland and Breed did prioritize in the budget process for police this year, which is a huge priority for her. But we didn't necessarily see that for all of these other departments that are also struggling. Mallory Mensch, thanks. Thank you. Thanks to my guests today. They're Chronicle reporters Chase DeFelici Antonio and Mallory Mench, who works out of City Hall. Thanks to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. <laughs>